Coming up next on Tech News Weekly, Micah Sargent and I, Jason Howell, talk to Joseph Cox from Vice about how AI systems are creating convincing replicas of celebrity voices, like mine right now, often without permission to do so. Then Micah speaks with Daniel Rubino from Windows Central about Microsoft's major announcement this week that it's bringing chat GPT technology into its Bing search experience. AI sure is a big deal, it seems. Plus, our stories of the week next on Tech News Weekly. Podcasts you love. From people you trust. This is Twitter. This is Tech News Weekly, episode 272, recorded Thursday, February 9th, 2023. This episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by ACI Learning. If you love IT Pro, you're going to love ACI Learning. ACI Learning offers fully customizable training for your team and formats for all types of learning across audit, cybersecurity, and IT. From entry-level training to putting people on the moon, ACI Learning has got you covered. Visit go.acilearning.com slash twit to learn more. And by Bitwarden. Get the password manager that offers a robust and cost-effective solution that can drastically increase your chances of staying safe online. Get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan, or get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. Hello and welcome to Tech News Weekly, the show where every week we talk to and about the people making and breaking the tech news. I am one of your hosts, Micah Sargent. And I'm the other guy, Jason Howell. And let's see here. This week's tabulation on AI content (laughs) is 50%. So 50% of today's show has something to do with AI. (laughs) <laughs> oh boy, it is the thing to talk about, that's for sure. <laughs> I know, it just keeps on bubbling up. And this has actually been a pretty crazy week as far as that's concerned. So uh, why don't we dive right in? First and foremost, uh, one of the many imprints of this modern AI spectacle that we're you know consumed by right now is a future that may be dotted with replica voices, right? Voices that sound like someone but aren't actually them. What happens when a computer... Uh, or an algorithm, an AI can actually imitate the voice of someone without their permission. Because you imagine, like, you know, some people might give that permission, other people, not so much. And it doesn't take much to do this, uh, to use this technology. So it's, it's, uh, it's creating some interesting, uh, problems along the way. Joining us to talk about this is Joseph Cox, who wrote about this, uh, in a few stories for Vice. Welcome back, Joseph. Thank you for having me back. Absolutely. Always a pleasure to get you on. And you've upgraded your system. Your voice is crisper and clearer than it's ever been. So it's great to have you here. (laughs) Uh, Let's... Let's uh, start with last week because the stories that were, you know, you wrote a couple of stories about this. It kind of began last week, or at least that's, you know, when some of this news that we're talking about today started. And then we got some uh, more news to follow up on for this week. So last week you wrote about 11 labs. Uh, this is a company that's been working very hard on this replica uh, voice technology, this AI system to uh, replicate uh, the voices. Anyone who's watching or listening to this show in podcast form will notice that the tease today was me ran through 11 Labs system. So 
you can use your own judgment as far as how good or how not so good it is. But anyways, so people are getting into trouble with this. Uh, tell us a little bit about the company itself, the technology that the company has created, how much. And also, I'm really curious about this, how much audio is really even needed to create a replica using their uh, system? Yeah, sure. So Eleven Labs is one of these many, many companies in what I would call the audio generation space, I guess, for lack of a better way of putting it right. Uh, And you you have lots of these different companies basically all doing the same thing, right, where you either record audio or you upload audio. Uh, I've tested several of them, and it can range anywhere from, you know, five to ten minutes of audio uh, up to 60 minutes of audio. Of course, the more audio you provide, presumably the better quality voice uh, you're going to get. One I tried was I had to read, I think, a minimum of 50 lines that the site gave me, just a, a script that they've generated. Uh, and that was relatively quick, you know, and it wasn't the yeah. best voice in the world, but I could have kept going as well. Where Eleven Labs is a little bit different is that the barrier for entry is so low. They had this beta program uh, a couple of weeks ago now, uh, across a weekend, and you could basically just sign up and start generating voices. I can't remember if it was cheap or entirely free, but it was exceptionally easy to do this, you know? And that's sort of the main thing they're offering, whereas, and it's similar with visual deepfakes, you know, where people are superimposing faces onto other people. That started as a very technical process where you had to use open source software and download it and run it yourself, blah, blah, blah. That's how audio started. And our companies like 11 Labs basically do all that, all of that work for you. And that's where they sit in this industry at the moment. And opens it up to really anyone that wants to use it, at least in its current beta form, which is uh, democratizing. And, you know, it, it kind of comes with the, the good and the bad, right? The good is everyone has access. Everyone should, you know, someone shouldn't be uh, just uh reduced or or prevented from using a service uh you know something like this that's that has the potential to have such a wide impact but there is the other side that uh people end up using this for not so good reasons 4chan members as one example apparently use the system to uh create unauthorized and in many ways abusive material talk a little bit about what they created and it really didn't take them long of course they're what you know some people are just waiting for the opportunity to to light the world on fire but uh what did they create uh and what is the response by the actual humans that were being replicated if at all yeah so i mean as expected 4chan took Uh, It seems like it was 11 Labs just because 4chan was also talking about 11 Labs while sharing these clips, you know, so that's how we brought the link between the company and and, and 4chan. Uh, But the clips themselves were a wide mix of a voice that sounded like Emma Watson reading Mein Kampf. Uh, there was some Joe Rogan stuff in there, some Ben Shapiro as well. I think there was a Rick and Morty one about domestic violence. So, you know, the real spectrum of bad to horrific stuff, you know, transphobic, homophobic, violent, whatever you want, it was being created and shared uh, by these 4chan members. As it come, When it comes to the reaction of the people replicated, I haven't heard anything from 
uh, particular celebrities, you know, like Emma Watson or Joe Rogan or anyone like that. Yeah, but we're continuing to look at how this technology may be used to target, you know, more ordinary people because that is what is going to happen when the barrier of entry is so low. It's like, you know, you, you could end up being a target of harassment or, or whoever. It doesn't necessarily have to be celebrities, you know, so that's sort of what we're looking at next. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense, right? Like, this is just one one angle, one aspect of how these services, you know, can be applied or how AI can be applied to creating something that didn't exist before audio and, you know, voice being one example, there's music, there's, there's art. And in all of these cases, we're kind of, we're kind of recognizing the impacts of these things, you know, deep fakes, you know, what was it? Not, not very long ago, there were, there were people that were putting, you know, uh, someone's face into like pornographic material and creating deep fake pornography. Uh, and of course the person that's, that's this, you know, being placed into these situations did not give uh, permission to do so. Now this is happening with our voice. Do, do companies like this, and actually, I should focus this on companies like Eleven Labs, because that's what this whole story is about. Do they have like, is there any way that they can control those kinds of things? I guess in the in the realm of like pornographic material, AI systems can recognize at this point if something has a high likelihood of being pornographic. But what about, you know, unauthorized voices like that's that seems like a, a lot harder to crack down on. Yeah, so I don't know if Eleven Labs has put this measure in, but I did try another audio generation company where they had a sort of interesting mechanism where after you've read your script or uploaded your audio or whatever, it came up with a message where you had to say, hi, yes, I am Joseph Cox. I authorize this company to produce a replica of my voice. So the person whose voice you're generating has to have said that. Now, obviously, if you're ah. recording your own voice, that's not an issue because you just say it. Not everybody's going to have a recording of Emma Watson lying around mm. saying exactly mm. those words, right? So yeah, there are yeah. some sort of technical mechanisms in place. Obviously, I'm sure you could trick it or work around sure. it somehow, but there's something there. And then Eleven Labs, when this misuse was being identified, they came out and they sort of more asked Twitter, like, hey, what should we do? Do you think maybe we should ask for a full identification check? Maybe we could do payment authorization. So, you know, you can only generate a voice if you've signed up with a credit card, something like that. I imagine that would be quite effective at stopping a lot of mm. the trolls. You know, one service I tried, I had to pay or rather I had to subscribe to a $30 a month subscription model. And, you know, maybe not all the trolls are going to want to spend 30 bucks on whatever right. they're doing. Some will, but like not all of them. So there are measures in place. And then you bring up, you know, whether artificial intelligence could detect certain imagery. Uh, I mean, yes, uh, absolutely. For audio, I, I guess so. But then you're going to almost get into the question of, well, is this audio being generated for acting, which of course we're going right. to a story that we'll speak to in a minute. And the use case can of course bring in irony, satire, acting. It just sounds like it could get very complicated very quickly, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No question. Uh, there, there are no easy solutions for these things. And it feels like we're right in the middle of the, uh, 
you know, of the this AI explosions of these things. Undoubtedly, you know, it's going to take time to figure these things out and get it to a point uh, to where everybody feels respected and uh, and you, you can trust these systems to do good. But um, but I guess the reality is there's probably no such thing as totally and completely uh, free and clear of people you know using these things for harm. But uh, you mentioned it this week. Uh, you wrote about how many voice actors are actually being asked to um, allow or sign away, I guess, their rights to their voices for these AI systems. What um, the actor, because you spoke, you and your team spoke to a number of actors about, uh, you know, for this story. What did they mm -hmm. say about how these deals are structured? Like what, what, what are they asking for? Uh, it varies, but generally the response I got was that first of all, the sort of clauses in contracts which bring up synthetic voices or that sort of thing, they don't usually say artificial intelligence, they say likeness, synthetic, replication, uh -huh. that sort of thing. Um, so they're getting more and more prevalent. And, you know, one advocacy organization said they're very prevalent at this point. Uh, the general feedback I got from the actors was that well, they don't want to have to do this. You know, they want to have the option to be like, well, no, I'll just come in and do my job as a voice actor. I would like to be able to do that work without also signing away my rights to you so that you can then go generate something of artificial intelligence. And, you know, there are lots of different reasons why a voice actor wouldn't want that. But one that, stuck, uh, that really stood out to me was that if you're a voice actor, you're in a booth, you're doing your session, uh, maybe a line comes up in the script that you don't like, you don't agree with, and you, like, you just, you're not comfortable performing it. You can very easily, well, hopefully very easily, depending on the power dynamic, you can say, I don't want to, I don't want to read that line. And ordinarily, that would be the end of it because you are not going to provide consent. You're not going to read out uh, the line and give them the audio. Of course, if the producer, the director, whoever, now has the rights to your voice to go make an, an AI version... Well, you don't need to read the line. They'll just go make it if you if you're not agreeable to this. So that idea of consent, the, the that really really jumped out to me when I was speaking to these voice actors. Yeah, no kidding. Uh, an actor saying, you know, that is just something that I'm not willing to say that I would never say, and then with these rights signed away, it happens anyways. Now, sure, it wasn't them saying it, but that's kind of, <laughs> that misses the point when it's your voice and, you know, every everything is open to interpretation. Um, I think those those subtleties get lost when you're talking about millions of people hearing that particular voice saying that particular thing. I could get into a lot of problem. Did you speak with any, uh, did you and your team speak with any um, artists or actors uh, who are offering voices who actually welcome this technology? Because, I mean, on one hand, I, I totally understand where they're coming from. On the other hand, I'm like, yeah, but there's also the potential of opportunity there. Like, I, as a voice actor, can can only do so much if I can lend my voice to a project without doing it myself. You know, that might be time I don't have, but money I can make on another project. Were there any that, that said, hey, this is actually pretty cool? Yeah, so I reached out to Eleven Labs to ask them, look, have you spoken to any voice actors and, and that sort of thing? Have you consulted with any? And they uh, sent me a quote from a voice actor called Lance Blair. I then reached out to Lance Blair myself, obviously, to verify what they said and, and chatted to them independently. But 
He shared the concerns of his colleagues across the industry, but he also saw the benefit in this technology that he could be maybe be able to use it to supplement his income or, or use it in different ways and that sort of thing. So look, there are people who could use it. I would say that he worked, at least judging by his portfolio, more on the conference narration sort of side, whereas most of the voice actors I spoke to are in video games like Apex Legends or Halo Infinite, mm. that sort of thing. So the industry is very, very broad, right? And it has lots yeah. of different actors and servicing lots of different industries. And with that being said, one of the advocacy organizations I spoke to said that this AI could really knock out more the blue-collar voice actor worker who may be working a nine-to-five job in some other industry and is then trying to record stuff at night in the evening or maybe the early morning to try to get a break into this career, that's just not going to happen if AI can easily pick up the work for people. And then just lastly, I would just say that when Eleven Labs, when I went to them and asked for a statement, they said that, well, for voice actors, they're no longer limited by the time they can spend in the booth, you know, they can go out Mm -hmm. and, well, they can send their voice out and people can replicate it and they can make money that way. I did show that to one voice actor and they were like, the issue is not that we don't have time to go in the booth. We want to go in the booth as much as possible. You know, it's kind of a fundamental misunderstanding of how these voice actors actually want to work. They want more work. They don't want to give it away to the AI. Yeah, yeah. It, it, not 100% of their time is occupied to where they couldn't, you know, make time to go into the booth. That's obviously their preference. Um, yeah, so this is really interesting to see how this uh, works out. You know, another, I, I have to wrap the interview, but another thing that comes to mind is like, you know, signing over your rights and then say that actor or actress passes away. You know, what, how do those rights extend into uh, beyond them being alive? I'm sure that would be hammered out in the, in the details and in the contract, but you could really see where suddenly you know their voice is is uh you know (laughs) locked away and and used in the future uh, like it has been in the past so um anyways very interesting stuff joseph cox really appreciate you coming on and uh talking about this joseph of course writes for vice vice vice.com uh if people want to follow you online do you point them to twitter mastodon where are you hanging out these days uh, my Twitter is Joseph F. Cox and my Mastodon, which I set up yesterday or started using yesterday, is just <laughs> Joseph Cox. So you can be one of my 32 followers if you really want. But yeah, there we'll you go. Like. Get in early. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Get in early. You could say you were there at the beginning. Uh, thank you, Joseph. We'll talk to you soon. Appreciate you. Thank you. All right. Coming up, uh, the AI fun, the other 25% of AI in the show uh, continues. (laughs) Chat GPT coming to Bing. Uh, Big news this week. So Daniel Rubino is going to uh, talk with Micah all about that. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by ACI Learning. You already know IT Pro that they bring you an engaging, entertaining IT training, IT content. Now IT Pro is part of ACI Learning, if you hadn't already heard. Together, IT Pro and ACI Learning are expanding their production capabilities. They're bringing you content and learning style that you need at any stage of your own personal development, whether you want individual training for yourself uh, or if you want to train your whole team. They've got that as well. ACI Learning and IT Pro has you covered. Join over 227,000 members of the IT Pro Learning Community, access to 6,800 hours of content, new content added every single day, 
You can get team training for CompTIA, Microsoft IT training, Cisco training, Linux training, Apple training, uh, and then, of course, security, cloud, and so much more. Now, one of the most widely recognized beginner certifications is the CompTIA A+. CompTIA courses from IT Pro and ACI Learning make it easy to level up your employees who all have a vested interest in cybersecurity. The most popular certifications offered by ACI Learning include CISSP, AWS, ISACA, and CCNA. And then, of course, other very in-demand tech skills and certification courses are offered as well. Things like technical support specialist, computer user support specialist, got information security analyst, and that's just, you know, scratching the surface. Certifications show more than proving a skill set. They actually let your customers see that you're committed to keeping your organization up to date. It's like it's like proof that you are keeping everybody up to date and that everybody's really on top of the current trends and the current knowledge. And ACI Learning and IT Pro are with you every step of the way. With an IT Pro business plan, ACI Learning offers fully customizable training for your team so you can track your team's results. You can do all, you know, see all the metrics for when they're logging in, how much they're viewing, the tracks that are completed. You can manage subsets of users. So it's really great for team management. Uh, you can provide customized assignments, monitor their progress as a team, as a whole. Um, you can also, you know, assignments can be full courses. It can also be individual episodes within courses. Uh, and you get just all of that really rich, um, detailed data as far as insight into how your team's viewing uh, this content and the progress that they're making over time. You get visual reports that really uh, illustrate that perfectly. Respected companies and government agencies around the globe, they're turning to IT Pro and ACI Learning year after year to help them uh, maintain their competitive edge, supporting organizations across audit, IT, and cybersecurity readiness. ACI Learning keeps you and your team at the top of your game, and you want to be at the top of your game. So you got to check them out. From entry-level training to putting people on the moon, ACI Learning has got you covered. Maintain your company's competitive edge with ACI Learning and visit go.acilearning.com slash twit. That's go.acilearning.com slash twit for those of you who are looking to start today with a standard or a premium individual it pro membership make sure and use code twit 30 you do that you'll get 30 percent off and we thank aci learning for their support of the twit network and tech news weekly thank you aci learning all right micah over to you well we thought this was on the way and turns out it was. Uh, Microsoft held an event earlier this week as we record this show uh, that we knew was going to have something to do with AI. Joining us to talk about what Microsoft is up to is Windows Central's own Daniel Rubino. Welcome back to the show, Daniel. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's a pleasure to get you on to talk about this. Now, of course, we know Microsoft held this event on Tuesday. Uh, I was hoping that you could start by giving us a brief summary of everything that was announced before we dig into kind of <laughs> the big headline. Sure. Well, there was quite a lot of announced, but, uh, you know, the key takeaways here is, well, Microsoft's had the Bing search engine for many years. It's been sort of the butt of jokes for a lot of people, uh, <laughs> but they've added AI to it and AI, you know, I'll put in quotes because, you know, that's a broad term, which we can get into more specifics of uh, how it's actually implemented. Uh, 
But yeah, so it's sort of the chat chat GPT model that's built into it. So it's going to give you more refined, more accurate results. And again, we can expand upon what that means because that's also a loaded uh, term. But they also announced a new version of Microsoft Edge, which has... Besides a UI uh, overhaul that matches more closely to Windows 11, they also changed uh, performance on the back end. So the whole thing is just faster and a little bit smoother. But they also built in this chat model into the browser itself with a new Bing button in the corner that then gives you access to these new features. And of course, this is all just the beginning of what Microsoft is going to be doing with AI. They're starting with search. And there's some good reasons why they're starting with search besides the obvious ones. But, you know, we can talk a little bit about that, why, you know, AI can or cannot be dangerous, you know, going on with technology. I know a lot of people have concerns about it, but with search, it makes a little bit more sense since the user's always in control. And, you know, in terms of search, there's nothing that the AI is technically controlling that could threaten anyone. The most it can mm-hmm. do is give you bad information. But that's, you know, about it versus putting it into some, you know, more uh, important systems, maybe autos or, you know, other technology that could actually affect a person's health or well-being. Absolutely. Now, this, I think, was kind of the the biggest thing for me is. I I was curious to see what exactly the company was going to announce, how it was going to announce uh, this long rumored now uh, integration with OpenAI's own technology. And of course, it is all about the ChatGPT powered Bing search. And I am curious, uh, first of all, have you been able to try it out? And then in doing so, um, I'm curious if you had tried the chat.openai.com, I believe is the URL, uh, <laughs> ChatGPT's, or rather OpenAI's own ChatGPT service. And if there's a difference right. between the use of those two. Sure. So uh, to answer the question, yeah, I'm actually using it right in front of me as I speak. I can use it right now if I wanted to. Uh, so they do have early access. Uh, Press got even earlier access to it. So we, we got to cut the line a little bit for, I think, obvious <laughs> reasons. But uh, it is slowly rolling out. You can sign up for access now. You'll be put on a wait list. They're basically slowly rolling this out to users. And it will go wider in the coming weeks and months uh, based on performance, feedback, and optimizations that they'll be implementing. Now, in terms of what people know as ChatGPT 3.0, which is available on, as you mentioned, the OpenAI website. So that's a cool little system where you can just start a com- You can ask a question and it's going to give you the results and it'll be summarized and it can do all sorts of neat things. This does that, but it's different. So they don't, it's not actually chat GPT. It's similar, but they call this a Prometheus model. That's what actually Microsoft is using. It's built off of aspects of chat GPT, namely as conversational methods. They are both large language models, but uh, Prometheus is, which also is just a great word, but a great name. Indeed. Is, yeah. is much more, it's much more powerful than chat GPT. Now, they won't say specifically, but we can effectively say this is ChatGPT 4.0. They won't say that publicly. They'll say it's sort of the next version of ChatGPT, the more advanced version. But that's uh, internally what we're hearing that basically kind of is. So the differences are when you go to ChatGPT and you ask it something, it's going to give you the answer, but it's not as um, one as refined as the Bing search results. So Prometheus is built to be part of search, not just... Um, 
giving a conversational response. It, it really goes out onto the web, pulls in data, correlates data. More importantly, it annotates that data. So as it gives you a response, it's sort of like a term paper. It's going to give you a little one, a little two, a little three. And when you hover over all those, it's going to give you the original source of where that information came from in case, A, you want to go read more or to validate the information yourself. And then the other difference is ChatGPT kind of just ends. You ask it a question, it does its job, and then you can go on to the next question. What this does, that will prompt you for further suggestive uh, content based on what you ask. And it's really helpful because if you ask it a question, it's going to be like, you know, what about this? And it'll give you like three uh, suggested uh, things, and then you can just click that. You don't need to re-enter anything. And it's going to give you another contextual result based on the previous thing you were asking, asking. So you can go even deeper. And this is very important because, you know, I've used ChatGPT and what's neat about it, you have to kind of go there with a specific thing you want it to do. But unless you're, it's like kind of being in a conversation with someone who's not good at conversation. That person just <laughs> yep. there, um, you know, like, so anyway, and uh, that weather. <laughs> And you kind of don't know, you know, how to converse there. So what this is doing is it's giving people a way in by going, you know, I can provide you even more information on this topic. What about this? And you'd be like, oh, yeah, that's a great question. Yeah. What about that? How is it different? You know, and so then it'll serve up even more content for you. So it's sort of like Wikipedia, you know, where you go, you land on a Wikipedia page, you want to read about maybe a person and then you're like reading it and you're like, Oh, they were in that. You know, what is that? And then you click that and then you're about that movie. And then next thing you know, you're like an hour into Wikipedia bringing in all this information. And that's kind of what they're doing with this, which is helpful to make, you know, make people use it more. But obviously, uh, time on page and the more you're using the Bing service, mm -hmm. the better for Microsoft. So there's a, um, it's sort of like the TikTok model, right? You want to keep people glued to it. And that's sort of, I think, also the other end of why they're doing that. Yeah. And this is what's interesting to me is because, uh, you know, OpenAI has talked about how expensive it is for them to uh, have the chat GPT system and, and to run that and how these big companies have kind of gone okay, we'd like to do more AI stuff, but we've got so many users that if we open up the access to these tools, it's going to result in none of it working because it's just too much processing power. Did sure. Microsoft address any of that? I mean, what are they doing? Is Azure yeah. behind the, what, what's going on there? Yeah, sure. I did have conversations with people about that. And so uh, there's a lot to that. Uh, they are using Azure to uh, run this stuff. They also have a supercomputer that was announced around 2020 that they're using in conjunction with OpenAI to train these language models on. It's one of the only few supercomputers in the world, which is one reason why Microsoft has been able to get this uh, model so advanced, seemingly so quickly and ready to actually go out to the public. But this is powered by Azure. They're working very closely with those teams. They have optimized the results to be faster. And that's the other half of this. So I said it's kind of based on chat GPT uh, 4.0. And that one of the things about that is it's supposed to be a faster model. It's supposed to be quicker, but they're doing optimizations on the back end, addressing the pricing thing. You know, Microsoft wouldn't get into specifics. They'll just say something to the effect of that. Um, they're being very efficient how they use data. For example, say you just ask a basic question, you know, like a, a website or what's the weather, or you're just looking up a person's name, right? That's just going to be a basic search and it won't use this deep language model, meaning it won't, you know, offset their processing ability. It'll just still use the regular kind of Bing 
with that. It's only uh, into effect when you usually go into the chat mode or ask a deeper question. Then it'll hand off to the system. So they're being efficient that way. Also, just the way the model is actually operating is just being more efficient. They've also said that in time, like all technology, this will become more efficient in pricing and it'll come down in scale specifically because they're working with open AI and this is just evolving technology. They're going to offset some of the costs though, like all search results with ads, there will be ads present. Now, when you go to chat mode, there's no like pop-up ads that are you know showing up there, but there will be sort of like sponsored content here and there. So it's just like Google, there will be advertising there. I will say during the uh, investor call that they had, to put this into perspective, why in they probably may even eat some cost here, and I don't mm-hmm. think they necessarily mind because they publicly stated for every one percent of search market share that they gain, you know, presumably taking away from Google, it equals two billion dollars in annual revenue. Whoa! So that yeah, so that's just putting into perspective why they're saying that this search is so important for them. Because for every 1%, it's $2 billion. And so if they gain a couple percentage points, you can imagine what that would affect on their bottom line. They also have said that because they control, you know, they're a distant second from Google, they can innovate faster, they can take bigger risk, they can do more because they have less to lose compared to Google, who's going to be a bigger uh, company that's a little bit tougher to get uh, change things in search. And so they're going to be more dynamic than Google in this space. So what we see today is just the beginning of it. We're going to see a lot more coming online from Microsoft uh, in that regard there. But that's sort of the answer to the the cost. Um, There's also another little point here too, which is the free model, what we're kind of using today, it's Mm -hmm. not perfectly fast. It's faster than chat GPT, but you can still see pauses once in a while. And it'll tell you like, you know, generating an answer for you so you know it's doing something when i I absolutely am convinced that enterprise who subscribe to microsoft 365 will and are paying for their services will get a prioritized computing Mm -hmm. of this versus the open free version now will microsoft tie that into say the consumer market and microsoft 365 we don't know yet but i would bet they would because that will help offset that cost even further, as well as giving people a benefit that, well, you get the head of the line for uh, this data and how quickly it'll be processed. That makes sense. Yeah. So there will there is some uh, payment involved with it. And it's, wow, yeah. that, that percentage that you were talking about, that is mind blowing. Now, you did uh, briefly touch on this, uh, but I am curious. I think folks would definitely be interested um, who right now can use this and when is it expected to be a full rollout? And is there something that folks can do to get to try it now or soon uh, if they want to give it a go? Yeah, the short answer is you can go to bing.com forward slash new, and then you'll see sort of like a sign up page. And uh, I believe you should have a Microsoft account uh, to be able to do that, which kind of makes sense. But it'll tell you the process you need to do it. And also, if you start using Bing as like your uh, default search engine and set it as your homepage and all that, uh, you start using the mobile app, you'll probably get even sort of bumped up in the line because you're using it more, right? So mm-hmm. they want to kind of prioritize the people who are actually the users of Bing and are actually involved with it and actually using it day-to-day versus the person who right now is just like, I've never touched Bing. I don't know anything about it. I just <laughs> want to try it right now. 
and, and those people will get access to it. You know, Microsoft's been pretty transparent with all this. They said, yes, this will come to even other web browsers in the future. This is going to be very open. They're going to allow other services besides their own browser. But right now, it'll be rolling out, like I said, a couple hundred users, a thousand users, and that'll continue to go up because they obviously want to gain feedback based on one, the accuracy to the performance of it. Are people enjoying it? How they can tweak the model? Uh, and also, you know, just how well it's being received. And, and they'll start to roll it out there. They haven't given firm dates to that, but we can expect the weeks and the months as it goes on, we'll see it uh, evolve and change. And I think that's one thing that's really interesting about all this AI stuff, whereas like uh, previous technology, like, let's take smartphones. You know, they came out, what, 2004, 2005, six with the trios, and then you had the iPhone 2007. But if you look at that market, it took a good uh, five to even 10 years of maturity, right? In, in 2012, it was that was when the market started to go really mainstream with consumers and really take off. So it was a very slow thing. AI is not like that. We were going to see almost a real-time AI change and improve because that's just how these language models work. It's exponential growth and improvement. So although we may see a couple of articles that'll pop up like, funny responses that were wrong. Uh, that stuff will very quickly go away because this stuff is very uh, fast learning and changes very, very quickly. Meaning we're going to see changes in weeks and months and not like say three or four years. It's going to be a really interesting thing to watch. Absolutely. I mean, the biggest conversation, the headlines everywhere are, uh, is this the end of Google or will Microsoft unseat Google? Um, you know, goodbye, Google. How do you feel as a person who's long, you know, watched what Microsoft does and uh, you know, testing this out and seeing what is is it is it an actual possibility that Google, even if they don't, you know, it's not the end of Google, but to unseat Google as the search engine of choice. Do you think that's possible or are they too far behind? I I don't think it's necessarily possible. I think Google's lead here is so powerful and so so large that it'll be hard for Microsoft to overtake them. Uh, that said, you know, historically how technologies worked in this area where someone comes up from behind and takes over it requires two things. One, you need some sort of new innovation that is just unmatched. And we kind of do have that here, at least for now. The other thing is you need the leader, the market leader to screw up so badly that it causes their market to fall. You saw that in browsers, right, with Netscape versus Microsoft's uh, Explorer at the time. We do kind of have that dynamic set up a little bit here, but I don't think it's enough for Microsoft to unseat Google. Mm -hmm. They can absolutely possibly gain market share. It's a tough thing, though, because people are locked into search engines. They very much just like Google and they know it uh, and they'll vouch to say the results are more accurate, even though that's not necessarily true. But it's also like browsers. Brow people get very much locked into browsers. So I'm not sure people are going to switch large numbers. But going back to those numbers I mentioned before, 1%, $2 billion, Microsoft only really needs to continue gaining points here and take away that market share to really have an effect on their bottom line and hurt Google's bottom line. They have been growing Bing every single year. So it is improving. Uh, I don't know if it's going to be uh, an exponential jump. It may do. Now, when it comes to Google, I would never count them out in this stuff. Obviously, they're working on AI too, but 
the uh, consensus, and this was on the ground too, in talking to people behind the scenes and off the record, is that what Google is responding to Microsoft, they're not necessarily leading in this category right now. And we kind of saw that in that cobbled together press conference. And that's where I think a lot of investors lost a little bit of confidence, confidence in Google because it doesn't look like they're nearly at the same level as where Microsoft is. Now, can they get there? Of course they could, right? They have a large team and everything. But as I mentioned, that they're a they're a bigger uh it's their market to lose. They have to be a little bit more careful than Microsoft here, not to screw up their own search results and cause all sorts of havoc. Uh, one thing that was a little disturbing that I know people have a concern with Google's model is they don't show the annotations and the responses that like Microsoft's do. And this is important to publishers who want kind of click throughs. And this stuff will hurt publishers probably in a lot of ways since you won't need to click through to read the original source. But Google's model seems even worse. Now, whether they change that or not remains to be seen. But um, I think Google will respond in time. But I think Microsoft right now currently has the lead. And in the meantime, they're going to be doing a lot more of this. They were pretty open. Like this is stuff will go to Microsoft Word and Office. This will go into Outlook. It's already in Teams or it's coming to Teams. They've already announced that. And it will definitely go into the Windows operating system on some level as well. So there's going to be a lot more of this stuff going into all their products. Google doesn't quite have that. They have search. They can do stuff with Android, and I'm sure they will. But that's kind of about it where they are for this, where Microsoft can be able to put it across their portfolio software. And that's mm-hmm. really has a, a bigger uh, effect than I would say than what Google has. Well, Daniel, I want to thank you so much for your time today to join us and talk about what's going on with Bing and AI. Uh, If folks want to follow you online, of course, they can head to windowscentral.com to check out your great work. But uh, if they want to follow you online and stay up with what you're doing, where should they go to do that? Sure. Well, I'm on Twitter, Daniel underscore Rubino, R-U-B-I-N-O. I'm on there pretty actively. You can always ask me questions there. I'm very uh, good at responding to everyone. And I'm also... Uh, on Mastodon, if you are offended by the Twitters, uh, I'm at Daniel <laughs> underscore Rubino. Same thing, but I'm at Newsy Social, uh, N-E-W-S-I-E. And I do respond there as well. So you can find me there. And of course, we do the Windows Central podcast every Fridays at 1.30 p.m. Uh, Eastern time on our YouTube channel. Also recorded so you can check in there. But we'll be talking about all this stuff, of course, and more. Beautiful. Thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having me. All right, folks, up next, we've got Jason Howell's story of the week, which will it be about AI? You'll just have to wait and see. But first, this episode of Tech News Weekly is brought to you by Bitwarden. Yes, it is time to get those passwords in order. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, at work, or on the go, and is trusted by millions. Even, you may have heard his name, Steve Gibson has switched over. With Bitwarden, you can securely store credentials across personal and business worlds. All of your data in Bitwarden's vault is end-to-end encrypted, not just your passwords. That's URLs for all the websites you have accounts for as well. Bitwarden doesn't track your data in the mobile apps. It only does crash reporting. And even that is removed in the F-Droid installation. So if you want the full kind of nothing is uh, sent to the company method, you can get that as well. Bitwarden is open source and invites anyone to review library implementations at any time on GitHub and also to review the Bitwarden privacy policies at bitwarden.com 
privacy. Protect your personal data and privacy with Bitwarden by adding security to your passwords with strong, randomly generated passwords for each account. And this is a really neat feature. Uh, Bitwarden takes it a step further because they have username generation, so you get unique usernames for each account as well. That makes it even better because now you've got a unique username, a unique password for every website, and it stops things like what I have where uh, someone will try to log in with my account and then I get an email about it uh, where they're trying to reset my password. It doesn't work, but that annoyance that's there is something that could potentially be solved by using this feature. Uh, You can also use any of the five integrated email alias services. So with that, it will generate random emails uh, for each account, which is something that I, th- I think is super important to use. Uh, Bitwarden offers email alias generation with simple login, uh, Anon Addy, Firefox Relay, Fastmail, and now DuckDuckGo. These services allow you to create a masked email address, one that you could use for only one website, and then forwards any emails to your primary email account. This keeps your main email address out of those databases of the services and sites you sign up for. Bitwarden is a must for your business. It's fully customizable. It adapts to your business needs. Their Teams organization option is $3 a month per user, and their Enterprise organization plan is $5 a month per user. You can share private data securely with coworkers across departments of the or across the entire company. Individuals can use their basic free account forever for an unlimited number of passwords or upgrade anytime to the premium account for less than a dollar a month. The family organization option gives up to six users premium features for just $3.33 a month. Bitwarden supports importing and migrating from many other programs too. In fact, uh, just recently on Ask the Tech Guys, uh, Leo showed the process of exporting and importing into Bitwarden. At Twit, we are fans of password managers, absolute fans, absolute uh, advocates, absolute evangelists for password managers. Bitwarden is the only open source cross-platform password manager that can be used at home, on the go, or at work, and is trusted by millions of individuals, teams, and organizations worldwide. Get started, you out there, get started with a free trial of a Teams or Enterprise plan or Get started for free across all devices as an individual user at bitwarden.com slash twit. That's bitwarden.com slash twit. And I know you all are very smart, very clever out there. You might just uh, go into Bing and type in Bitwarden, but I'd love it if you went to bitwarden.com slash twit because that lets them know, hey, you heard about it on Tech News Weekly and you want to make sure that connection gets made. So thank you, Bitwarden, for sponsoring this week's episode of Tech News Weekly. All right, Jason Howell, it is time for your story of the week. All right. Well, um, surprise, nothing to do with AI. Uh, <gasps> everything to do with A-N-D-R-O-I-D. No. <laughs> the other <A>. Letters. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Spell it. It's, it spells Android. So um, it feels early because the last version of Android, I mean, this happens every single year. The last version of Android really came out just a few months ago, Android 13, uh, last October, which actually now that I think about it, that's, that's five months. So that's, that's a solid amount of time, four and a half months ish, right around there. Anyways, Google released its first version of the next Android OS update, which is Android 14. This happened yesterday. Now it's not the official 
big release that you know suddenly is pushed out to phones. This is the developer preview, the very first developer preview of Android 14. So if you are a brave soul and you want to run this on your phone, you can. You can install it if you have any of the Pixel uh, family dating back to the Pixel 4a. You are able to flash this version of the next version of Android onto your device. But I would, I would caution you to against doing that unless you happen to be a developer and you really want to like start getting in there and understanding, you know, what's going on so you can uh, craft your apps and make them compatible or start moving in that direction anyways. But it's still kind of fun to see like what, what we can expect. And I think at the end of this, I'm curious to check in with you, Micah, as far as like the release cadence for iOS and how you think some of the features seem to stack up like with a major release of iOS. Um, you know, some of the things I'm going to talk about right now with Android, sometimes it feels a little out of balance to me. So I'm curious to know what you think. But first, let's shine a light on a few of the major changes coming to the platform it's an early glimpse, like I said. This is by no means exhaustive. So usually at this early stage, you learn a little bit about it. But I mean, Google hasn't even created kind of like the public story around this version yet. So it's really, you know, they, they've released a handful of details and then reporters and people like Michelle Rahman go in there and start picking it apart and start discovering things. So one thing is customization, uh, which every year there seems to be some updates uh, that are all about customizing your device. One thing that is hitting here is bigger fonts, which sounds kind of boring, right? Uh, bigger <laughs> fonts coming to Android. Yay. But, you know, this is this is one of those things that from an accessibility standpoint is actually really good. With Android 13, you had a maximum size for fonts of 130%. That's, uh, you know, 130% of the default size. So it capped out there. At Android 14, that increases up to 200%. So you can double the size of your fonts. Not only that, large text will actually hit a, a maximum ceiling. So if a large text gets so big that it's unviewable on your mobile device, that will cap, but smaller text will still be able to increase in size. So you'll be able to really kind of customize the the visibility of you know the the size of fonts within the OS. I'm super curious to see how that progresses and how people who uh, you know might might benefit from those changes um, perceive that. Um, the back gesture is something that is like I don't know how many years the back gesture has just been so unpredictable when it comes to Android. Android 13 implemented something called uh, predictive back or started to anyways, where it's really working with developers to get a better sense of what the back button actually does, depending on where you are within an app or on the home screen, that sort of stuff. Well, they're broadening this out and actually implementing it on a wider scale. So what this is going to allow you to do is when you are in an app and you use your swipe gesture to swipe back, which would take you you know, it could potentially take you to the home screen. It could potentially take you to the previous screen within the app. There's going to be a little preview that pulls up. It's like the card shrinks that you're in and it lets you see the other card that you're potentially going to. I don't know if that makes sense on a visual level, but it oh, gives yeah, you an okay. idea of where you're headed. Uh, so it isn't just this dark, you know, this black hole that you're swiping back is like, well, I hope I end up on the previous screen of this <laughs> app jump. and then you end up on the home screen. Oh, such a pain in the butt. I think I think iOS has has uh, the back behavior. 
I don't know. Have you experienced, like, d- does this even ring a bell as far as anything that you experience so, on iOS? Because it's been with not Android on iOS. Yeah. On Android, I know the struggles of the way the back works for sure. I, yeah. Just the other day, I was in an app and there was no way for me to leave the screen. And I swiped from the corner of the screen to see if that would do it. And instead it like switched the app and I'm going, yes, why is there? Cause in, on iOS, almost always there's a little Chevron that points to the left and apps that you're using. And, and even you know, to you look for from, that. Yeah. Yeah. And if you jump from one app to another, there's an even smaller one that's higher up in the corner. That's like, go back to the app you just came from. And mm. so I'm, you know, looking up there trying to find it. And then I'm also looking at the bottom to see if there's a back button down there there's nothing down there so i'm like okay i guess this is one where i have to swipe back and then as i mentioned i swipe back and instead of going to the screen before it it moved to a different app and i thought Ooh, how do i go where i needed to go so i might have just been a buggy app honestly but yeah yeah well this all this all sounds very familiar mike <laughs> this has been well, a good constant ongoing thing on android for for many years it's gotten better but it looks like it's going to get even better and i think clues like that really help from a usability standpoint uh cloned app support so this is the ability to create a second instance of an app that's on your device so in other words you could open up two separate accounts in two different instances of a single app so even if you have the app installed one time on your phone you could open it up multiple times with different accounts. So I've noticed many apps build, have built in the ability to open up multiple accounts within the app. But this, you know, but there are apps that still don't allow you to do that. Or you might have a reason to want to have them siloed and not within the same experience. Like Facebook does this. You can hop between accounts. But I could also see it being useful to have it on a system level so you could easily switch between them as opposed to going into Facebook logging out you know within the app jumping over to the other thing you couldn't do like side-by-side work if you if you really needed to do that on mobile so uh so that's coming um health connect which this dials into uh health data on the device this is a new platform uh that really aims at taking health and fitness data and making it interconnected between similar apps or apps that would benefit from that data been pretty broken in the past apps you know, haven't have like had a problem sharing certain pieces of data between them. Uh, you might have Fitbit. Uh, I mean, I don't know if this is a current example, but at one time, you know, something like Fitbit or Samsung Health, you know, talking to Google Fit and it, that data interplay between those things is never perfect. Some third party developers would create kind of an app to sit in the middle that would translate between them, but it's never perfect. That was ripe for Google to come in and say, hey, let's let's create an API. Let's create a system around this. And they announced this at I.O. last year as a collaborative effort between Google and Samsung. Well, now it's going to be fully integrated uh, into Android 14. So not needing a separate app in order to manage this. It'll just be all done under the hood. So I think that's really good for people who are into the fitness capabilities of their device. Um more security without requiring an over-the-air update. This is always welcome year after year in the last like three or four years with things like Project Mainline. Google has been building into Android uh, components or, or pieces of Android that can be updated uh, via the Play Store and Google Play services instead of requiring you to download the latest update. And as you know, 
you know, with Android, this is a constant um, complaint that people have. I have to, you know, security updates are baked into an, uh, th- an, the next major update. And I, this feature needs to be updated now, but yet I have to wait for my, you know, my OEM or my manufacturer to clear the next major update in order to get access to it. Google has been chipping away at this and moving more features into mainline, which means that it can be updated through Google Play and through Play Services. And so we're getting a little bit more of that. In fact, the root store um, within Android is going to be updatable via Google Play. So that basically means that Android 14 um, allows devices to be very current on on certificates of trust. Um, And Google would no longer have to push an operating system update uh, if you wanted to remove or add to that root store on the device. So that just keeps everything a lot more secure. Um, And then I think... You know, there, there's a lot of other stuff. One final thing that I'll mention here is uh, Android 14 tracking bloatware that installs in the background, which I haven't seen that in a very long time. But I can think of a situation or a scenario where it happens where I put in like a SIM for a carrier. And once I put that SIM into the phone, it's like there's apps associated with that SIM that start to download because you know, that SIM is for the carrier that has deals, you know, that if this SIM is in a phone, then these apps have to be have to exist on the phone as well. And so those things automatically get pushed to your phone. And I'm sorry, it's my phone. I either choose, I want those or Mm -hmm. I don't want those. Mm -hmm. So um, apps that install in the background would actually be listed and easily removed by the user in a special section um, in settings. Uh, So that's really nice, keeping things secure. But uh, like I said, there's there's other features. A lot more of it uh, is, as you can expect, because this is really meant for developers, focused on developers, API-focused, that sort of thing. But these are some of the features that I saw that might, you know, kind of appeal to users. Again, not like marquee features necessarily. They're like, oh, I have to get this because everything changes and it's and it's amazing. But it does kind of illustrate, point out to me how these updates for Android, you know, there's always like maybe three or four things that is like, oh, yeah, OK, that's that's kind of neat. Oh, yeah, that's I'm surprised that wasn't there all along. But it's rarely ever like it was a couple. I mean, even a couple of years ago, we got a major OS update, like a facelift of Android and everything, you know, went into material. You as the design language and Mm -hmm. that was a really visible update but we don't get many of those and i'm curious to know on on ios when you get a new major ios update i i I don't know from the outside looking in it always seems to me like there's some really great marquee things every time yeah so that's one of the things that apple really focuses on is in the yearly updates um they always have these sort of tentpole features. Uh, yeah. That's how they sell it. That's how they they uh, get people to you know upgrade to phones that support it. That's how they get people to download them and whoops get the security updates. That is part of the whole thing. So when they announce on stage, you know this new um, operating system, which they do every uh, summer. And then it rolls out in September, October with the new phone. It's the same pattern every time. And it's always about here are the new six, eight, 10 features, uh, 12, you know, it it can be many Mm -hmm. or, or few. So, yeah, that I mean, that's just kind of the the way that it goes every single time is uh, there's always some new feature set or updates to an existing feature set that improve upon what's already there. Um, I think the biggest sort of difference between the two platforms that I think Apple would benefit from 
is that Google Play services method of updating where on Apple's devices, almost every time you have to wait for kind of a big point to point three uh, update to right. install those latest security, uh, you know, fixes. Whereas on Android, I like the idea that, oh, if, if, you know, in one day they find the security flaw and they fix it, then that can be rolled out, that can be installed, and it isn't like a complete standstill of the phone. Whereas mm-hmm. on iOS, it takes three days for, you know, that to, to happen and to be fixed. And then when the point release uh, rolls out, then your phone does all of the shutting down and rebooting and everything right. else. And so people don't like to do it because they don't like to be interrupted from using their devices. So then those updates don't get installed and then their security is more likely to be compromised. Um, mm-hmm. So I think that if there was one thing that I think uh, Apple's iOS, iPadOS platforms would benefit from it is that. Um, But yes, ultimately, every time they want to be able to put on a show in uh, the summer to show what they've been working on for the next release and get developers excited about it and then get the general public excited about it. So they've got to have new things. Um, I think the last time there was a there's nothing new. update it was with mac os and it was because the previous version of mac os was unstable in so many ways and so there was nearly a standing ovation whenever they said we didn't do any new features we just worked on making this as stable as possible uh outside of that mac os instance every time there's new things or as i mentioned updated things that have new features added on to them so yeah, yeah it's it's a little bit different but um i think that perhaps both could benefit from some of the the uh the features of each other yeah yeah no question about it no question i mean and it is it is kind of the you know the the um the any excitement about a new version of android at this point is kind of sucked out of the air because of how early we know about what's going on, right? Like this, this happened today or yesterday, February 8th. Uh, These, uh, the, the betas begin in April. So we're going to have another developer preview in March. Betas begin in April. Stable begins in June. And then the final will happen sometime in August. So by the time the final version of Android 14 comes out, as one example, we will have had, you know, six or so months of of time to use and experience and everything. So if there's any surprises, I mean, rarely does Google hold on to any surprises anymore. It just kind of comes out and it's like, okay, it's out now. Yay. Oh, you know, interesting. <laughs> so yeah, not a whole lot of surprises to be had, but you never know. And that Maybe in for itself the, would be a surprise. The average person. It, it yes. More of a surprise, probably right? more They're so not for the average person. looking at these websites and, getting the betas installed and all that kind of thing. So hopefully they, Oh, a new update. And they, you know, it's all new for them. Yeah. Well, that's what I got. What, uh, what's on your, Oh, this, this impacts a lot of people, a lot of people and password sharing. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So Netflix has long been rumored and in some cases, not just rumored, but we've seen uh, Netflix working on ways to cut down on password sharing. They have a subscription service. And so you pay every month to uh, watch content on the platform. But what what has happened is people will share their password with other folks. And so there are multiple households using one Netflix account to watch the content. Um, Netflix is looking always for ways to uh, make more money, to gain more users, to not lose users, to afford all of the money that in the past it's put into content, um, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the ways that it has looked at tackling this is through password sharing crackdown. So instead of you being able to share your password with three of your best friends and everybody gets to log in from wherever they are and watch stuff using that one $7.99 a month, or actually now it's like $16.99 a month or what have you. Um, they are in, in Canada um, and in a few other countries, they are kind of implementing this new process where you have to go into the Netflix app and put in that you are in your primary location. So what this means is you basically say, this is my Netflix account. This is my home. This is where I'll be using it most of the time. And then Netflix can use like the IP address and some other information to know that you're logging in there. If you log in in other locations, it is not going to necessarily let you in. Uh, according to the Toronto Sun, it says, or excuse me, Toronto Sun, uh, it says, for viewers who frequently travel or own a second home, Netflix says the account holder will have to sign in on their Netflix mobile app at least once a month while connected to the Wi-Fi at their primary location. So if you do go other places, you just need to be back in your home once a month logged into Netflix in order to say, okay, this is still that person. This is still uh, that house that is, that is using the account. Um, mm -hmm. Netflix has tried this in other places where it has gotten a lot of blowback, a lot of, um, of, of upset users. And I think that they continue to try to experiment. But as far as this goes, Ultimately, I, you know, I'm not 100% against this. So uh, the way that this will work is that people who have a standard account or a premium account, and again, I'm pulling from the Toronto Sun here, uh, a standard account is about $17 a month. Uh, a premium account is about $21 a month. I believe these are Canadian dollars. Um, and so in either the standard or the premium plans, you can add an extra person to your account who lives in a different household for $7.99 a month each. So it's less expensive when you're adding another user. And I like the idea of saying, hey, family, let's all be on the same plan. And then, you know, mom pays $8 a month uh, and sister pays $8 a month. And then you are taking care of the, the main account. That's the 2099 a month or whatever it happens to be. Um, it's, it's a, it's, it's annoying obviously. And it's, uh, it's not fun to have to do this, but, um, Netflix apparently has said that more than 100 million households 
share accounts, according to their estimations. 100 million households are sharing accounts. And so it's hard not to think of the company looking at that and saying, that is money we are losing that we could be making and obviously wanting to make a change because capitalism. It, yep. the, there should be no shock and awe about this, I guess is what I'm saying. And if they've got that data and they know that the that folks are sharing these accounts, then it's no surprise to me that they're saying, yeah, um, we need to not let people do what goes against essentially the terms and conditions that they sign up for. Right. Right. What I am interested in, though, is how this will affect VPN users, because yeah. I do feel that um, privacy is is a human right and that folks should have the ability to uh, maintain some level of privacy while they're online. <laughs> At the same time, the argument could be made that, you know, if you don't if you want to keep yourself private, then just don't use this service, right? That's That would be the argument in return. Uh, you have to turn off the VPN to do this, so that's just how it is. But I don't know. Um, ultimately, I get that I get why they're doing this, and it's hard to be upset because it's just it just makes sense that if a company can address this uh, this huge money sink, then they're going to. But yeah. um, I have to ask. Uh, if you, if you have a friend, a hypothetical friend, uh, who is definitely not just you, um, it does that hypothetical, has that hypothetical friend ever done password sharing practices? I know my hypothetical friend has not with Netflix, but there have been a few times where my friend's mom really wanted to watch a show. And so my friend shared uh, his password with his mom so that she could watch the show. Uh, and I'm curious if uh, your friend has had any of this password sharing practice as well. I've certainly, I certainly have friends who have shared passwords <laughs> and some friends who still continue to share passwords for Netflix uh, in particular. I mean, it's, it's hard, right? Because for the longest time, Netflix kind of was okay with it. They were fine mm. with it. They tweeted it out. It was, it was well known. Even, even if the terms of service may have said otherwise, Netflix really seemed to come out in a public way and acknowledge it to the point. And you kind of had to follow it to know this, but they, they weren't, they weren't cracking down on it, you know, explicitly in the press saying, you know, saying this years ago, they were saying kind of the opposite at the same time. Like I don't fault them for wanting to actually um, make money on people who are using the service. If they know that all these passwords are being shared, like you said, I mean, they're they're a business. They got to make money, especially when things turn in the opposite direction. They have to look. All right, what are the what is the low hanging fruit here? And this this fruit's touching the ground. That's how low hanging it is. I mean, <laughs> you know what I mean? It's it's, yes. it's it's people sharing a password so that other people can use it. Um, and if that goes against the terms of service, and most other services aren't as freely open to that, then I can understand them wanting to, to crack down on that. I'll be curious to see how many people end up canceling their account out of frustration. Like, Oh, well, if they're not going to let me share this account with somebody else, then I'm out of here. You know, um, I don't know, $8. If it's a 4k plan, 
the extra person is eight dollars, if I'm not mistaken, right? Based on what they what they released, and yeah, that's not a horrible price for the 4K plan. You know what I mean? Exactly. If it's yeah. if it's truly someone in another household getting the 4K plan of Netflix for eight dollars, that's in my mind, that's a deal. So. I don't fault them for it. Um, it's it's inconvenient, sure. I'm kind of surprised that they didn't do this sooner, to be honest. Um, but, you know, here we are. So I get it. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I understand why they're doing it. Um, and I also understand folks who are going, well, that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I have to change things. And yeah, yeah, I feel things change. I feel for you. But sometimes, <laughs> yeah, sometimes things change and sometimes companies are going, well, we've grown and we keep growing and we keep having to spend a lot of money to make shows. And so we got to pay for those things. So yeah, let's yeah. Uh, figure out how to pay for those things. It's uh, it might trigger some people. Yeah, it might trigger some people really evaluating, like, do I still do I need it? Yeah. Find value in Netflix. And that could be a negative for for Netflix. You know, if people are like, well, you know, this is this is like the moment where I'm 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 pushed to reevaluate my subscription. And I've realized, like, I hardly ever watch it. And so I'm just going to cancel it anyways. And I'm sure we'll find out in the coming months. But this hasn't happened in the U.S. It sounds like it's 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 going to happen uh, pretty soon. So prepare yeah, yourselves, <laughs> you Be and your friends. <laughs> <laughs> you should prepare your friends for that as well. All right. We have reached the end of this episode of Tech News Weekly. We do the show every Thursday, twit.tv slash TNW for Tech News Weekly. Uh, so go there, subscribe, and you will get our awesome interviews and stories of the week each and every week. Thank you. Yes, Absolutely. And you should also please uh, check out Club Twit, twit.tv slash Club Twit. There you will find a way to become a member of Club Twit. Doing so gets you some great benefits. You get every single Twitch show ad free. Yes, no ads, just the content. You also get access to the members only Twit Plus bonus feed that has extra content you won't find anywhere else. Behind the scenes, before the show, after the show, all sorts of magic and mysticism is available there, uh, as well as access to the members only Discord server, a fun place to go to chat with your fellow Club Twit members and also those of us here at Twit. If you're going, what in the world is a Discord server? Well, if you've ever used Slack or Microsoft Teams, it's a lot like that. There are just these little channels, these little uh, areas that you can go into and chat about specific topics, specific categories. Uh, it's a lot of fun. And all of that is available starting at $7 a month or $84 a year at twit.tv slash club twit. We did hear from some people who said, hey, you keep making the club more valuable. I'd like to kick you some more dollars. And we said, okay, you can do that. So now that's why I say starts at seven bucks a month, because you can put in a price above that if you'd like. Um, and speaking of being more valuable, that's because we also have some club exclusive shows, the untitled Linux show, which is, as you might imagine, a show all about Linux, uh, as well as hands on windows from Paul Therod. It's a short format show, meaning you can go in, you can find a topic that you want uh, answers to. And Paul Therod walks you through great tips and tricks for making the most of your Windows machine. And then there's my show, Hands on Mac, which is all about Apple and its various devices. Again, another short format show. So uh, I, uh, you know, drill in on a specific category to help you get those questions answered. And the episode that'll be coming out later today is all about screen time on macOS, uh, the way for you to not only track how you are using your device, but um, put in some, some sort of obstacles to 
using certain features, certain sites, certain categories too often. So if you are uh, wanting to sort of put in a roadblock to spending too much time in social media, this is a great way to go about doing that as well, or uh, to protect, uh, you know, youngins from different parts of the web. This can help you with that as well. Um, if you would like to follow me online, I am at Micah Sargent on many a social media network, or you can head to chihuahua.coffee, that's C-H-I-H-U-A-H-U-A.coffee, where I've got links to the places I'm most active online. Um, and you should check out, again, Hands on Mac if you join the club, which publishes later today. Uh, this week, you can watch the Ask the Tech Guys show, which I co-host with Leo Laporte, where we take your questions and answer them online, typically on Sundays, but this week on Saturday, because Sunday is the Super Bowl. Um, and then Tuesdays, where I co-host iOS Today with Rosemary Orchard. Uh, great show, great fun, and I'd love it if you checked it out. Jason Howell, what about you? Well, you can find me at Mastodon, twit.social slash at Jason Howell. You can find me on the bird site, Twitter at Jason Howell and, uh, you know, doing other shows on the network, uh, all about Android, uh, twit.tv slash AAA just this last week, uh, just on Tuesday. In fact, I reviewed the OnePlus 11 5G that just came out. So you can check Ooh. out that review uh, on this week's episode, twit.tv slash AAA. But that is it for this week's episode. Big thanks to uh, John Ashley at the studio, Burke McQuinn, everyone behind the scenes. Anthony Nielsen, he created that awesome uh, tease uh, that we have at the beginning of this episode. <laughs> it kind of frightened me to see myself in AI form. So thank you for that, Anthony. It was pretty awesome. Thank you for the fright. Uh, <laughs> yes, thank you for the fright. Thank you for me looking into my future self. Um, and... Thanks to you for watching and listening each and every week. We'll see you next time on Tech News Weekly. Bye, everybody. Bye, bye. Hey, folks, I'm Ant Pruitt. I have a question for you. How do you think your hardworking team, with a Club Twit corporate subscription plan, of course, show your appreciation and reward your tech team with a subscription to Club Twit? Keep everyone informed and entertained with podcasts covering the latest in tech. With a Club Twit subscription, they get access to all of our podcasts ad free. And they also get access to our members-only Discord, uh, access to exclusive outtakes and behind-the-scenes footage and special content like the Fireside Chats that I enjoy hosting. Plus, they also get shows like Hands on Mac, Hands on Windows, and the Untitled Linux Show. So, go to twit.tv slash clubtwit and look for corporate plans for complete details. 